All right, you can be seated, and uh, welcome to Crossroads Church today. Man, it is so good to be able to begin our time with baptism. I've had the pleasure of knowing the Barretts for a long time, and so it just fills my heart with joy uh, to see uh, Brooklyn and Preston be baptized today. And can we just give it up to them one more time just for yeah, what God is doing in their lives? It's pretty amazing. Um, actually, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus says these words to his disciples. He says that unless you change and have the faith of a child, that you will not inherit, that is, that you will not get, you will not see the kingdom of God. And it's pretty remarkable words that Jesus speaks to his disciples there. And the understanding for us is what we saw today with the Barrett children is actually a model for us as an adult that we should uh, understand and take part in, not just visually watching, but actually following them in suit. That somewhere in Jesus' mind, he says that the way that children exercise their faith is ultimately the model for the way that us adults should do so as well. And so if today you want to take after the model of the Barrett's today and get baptized, we would encourage you to do that. Whether you are brand new to the faith or you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, uh, that baptism is really the proclamation of our faith. And as we proclaim our faith and enter into the waters of baptism, there's this mystery that, this, that the Bible speaks about where we are united with Christ, both in his death and his resurrection. It's this amazing thing that we get to participate in our faith journey. And if you haven't done that yet, we would love to walk with you in that. You can simply text the word next uh, to the number that Pastor James mentioned at the top of the hour, it's 720-513-1933, and we would love to walk with you as you explore what that could look like in your life, all right? So if you want to do that, uh, just text that number. Otherwise, uh, if you are new with us, uh, welcome today. My name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church, and uh, we're just delighted uh, to have you join us for this hour where we bring our worship to the God that we love. Uh, today, we are in our series in Acts. We're continuing through our series of Acts. And today, as we open the scriptures, we're going to look at what is one of the most famous and familiar stories in all of scripture in Acts chapter 17, where the apostle Paul goes to the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Athens, Greece. Now, before we get to the story today, it's helpful for us to remember that when it comes to this book of Acts that we've been reading through and going through as a church, that this is really the origin story of the church, that this is the beginning of the church that we are a part of some 2,000 years later, that this is, what, this is our story. And as we go through this, kind of season by season, it's such a large book that we've been chunking this up, that really starting in chapter 12, the season that we're currently in, the section that we're currently in, we're watching the church, despite great opposition, and even sometimes because of great opposition, become the unstoppable kingdom of God. Now, as we jump into this today, we see in Acts chapter 17 that the opposition that the church is facing is the same opposition that we face today in our world. And that is of relevance. Is Jesus relevant to the world in which we live in? Is the faith that we proclaim still relevant in the world in which we live today? Now, I would imagine that for most of us, that as we look out into the world and, and view the world, that there's some distress within us. There's distress within us. That we watch the chaoticness of society as it trusts time and time again in empty promises that fail to deliver. We watch friends and family and people that we love who are close to us continue to put their faith in the next charismatic political leader. 
That social media influences so much of our lives from our politics to where we vacation. It even has impacts on our mental health. And in all of it, all of it, we know, intrinsically we know as a society that we know what is being sold to us isn't going to work. That it's not going to live up to the promise that it's making. And yet as a society, we cling to a narrative of false hopes, of illusions, and pipe dreams. And for Christians, we, we speak about a relationship with God. That in that relationship, we experience meaning and purpose and significance. We actually get to experience freedom as we walk in the compassion of a God who both knows us, who loves us, who accepts us. And yet despite that reality of which we live in, the world doesn't seem all that interested in the God who we've given our lives to. In a world like ours, is Jesus relevant? Is the faith that we proclaim relevant to the world today? That's the question that has been the question since the very beginning. If you remember back, as Jesus begins his public ministry, he steps into the public light. And one of the first comments that we read about Jesus in the Gospels is what good can come from the hick town of Nazareth? Is Jesus relevant to the world? The question shows up again after Jesus is crucified on the cross as his disciples are gathered together wondering what to do next. Is, is the message that we've given our lives to, the message that we proclaim, is it relevant to the world? It's the same question that Paul encounters in Acts chapter 17 as he, as he engages the people in the ancient city of Athens. We read that story today, starting in chapter uh, 17, starting in verse 16, it says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, quick context for you. The whole reason that Paul is in Athens is because as he's going about his missionary journey, that, was, that is where he goes from city to city, he's planting churches, he's proclaiming the gospel. The gospel that Paul is proclaiming is this, is that Jesus is the son of God, that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, that three days later he rose from the grave proving he is who he says he is, and anybody who repents of their sin, calls out to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, will be saved. And as Paul is going from city to city, the remarkable thing is that people are hearing that message and they're, and they're being saved. Now, as he's jumping around from city to city, he ends up in this city called Berea. And as he's in Berea, you have this group of Jews who've been watching Paul go from city to city, proclaiming the message of Jesus, and they're growing increasingly frustrated because despite their best efforts, you know, killing Jesus, arresting followers of Jesus, even at times killing followers of Jesus, you know, beating Paul to an inch of his life, that despite their best efforts, the message of Christianity, the message of Jesus, the gospel continues to spread through the known world. And so they come up with a plan and say, we gotta, we gotta stop this guy. We need to put an end to Paul. And so the Jews end up in Berea, where Paul is at. And as Paul is there proclaiming the message, the Jews start to stir up all kinds of trouble. It gets so hot, so intense, that Paul's friends are like, bro, you gotta get out or they're gonna kill you. And so you have this kind of like clandestine, kind of, you know, secret ops mission that smuggles Paul out in the middle of the night to the port. They throw him on a boat. He travels 300 miles south to Athens which he's told to like lay low, don't draw any attention to yourself, just kind of hang out there and wait for us, we'll rendezvous there. That's what's going on. So while Paul is waiting for the rendezvous in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full 
of idols. So here's Paul. He's been brought there for his own safety. Paul, lay low, wait for the boys. They're coming. And as he's sitting there, his soul begins to become upset. That he's so distressed that as he looks out at the people of Athens, they seem to sincerely be seeking after truth. And yet they are so consumed, so consumed with the lies and the darkness of their society. Sound familiar? Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, in history, we're about AD 50. And when it comes to the city of Athens, it is a shadow of its former glory. Go back four, 500 years, and Athens is absolutely the epicenter of the world. It was the epicenter of all things as the capital of the Greek empire. It had 200,000 people in its city. Like in that time, that was a mega city. It even boasted of citizens such as Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, you know, people that we have studied in our philosophy classes and histories. I mean, Athens was the place to be. But by AD 50, the Greek empire was no more. The Romans had conquered them. And Athens was just a shadow of its former glory. By AD 50, the estimates of the population were around 10,000 people. And despite its shrinking size, it was still a significant place, both intellectually and philosophically. It was a place littered with temples and idols and statues everywhere you looked. In fact, in AD 50, it was estimated that there were some 30,000 statues in the city of Athens. One historian put it this way, that it was easier to find a statue than it was a person during this time. So here's Paul in a, in a city full of idols, full of false hope. And there's no way that Paul's just going to lay low, sit back, not draw any attention. Paul's going to do what Paul's going to do. And so he goes to the synagogue where, you know, Jews are there. And then he ends up into the marketplace called the Agora, where he starts to engage in conversation in the marketplace. Now, when we hear the word marketplace, immediately we kind of think of something like the Orchard Mall, right? A place that you go shopping. But the Agora in the ancient times, particularly in Athens, was so much more than that. The Agora was really the center hub of all of life. It was the center, like, spirit or soul of the city. I mean, take, your back, take yourself all the way back to AD 50, and when there weren't newspapers, where would you get your news? You would go to the Agora. You'd go to the marketplace. If you needed business to be taken care of or, or you needed to make financial arrangements, you would head to the Agora. If you wanted to check out the latest art trends or, or see theater or go shopping for the latest fashion trends or grab yourself some food or hear what's going on politically or talk about the latest philosophies, you went to the Agora, to the marketplace, to hear all that was going on. That the Agora was the central hub of the city, and when it came to Athens, it also marked its significance. Because the ideas, the philosophies, the politics that were talked about in the Agora in Athens would fan out throughout the Roman Empire and influence everything that happened there. And God has put Paul right in the middle of all of it. In verse 18, we're introduced to two schools of predominant philosophy there. Their names are the Epicureans and the Stoics. 
Now, I'm going to give you like a quick overview, a very simple overview of, of what they believed. If you're like a philosophy major from college, you're going to like look at this and you're going to shake your head if it's simplicity. If you want to nerd out, just send me an email later. I'll get it, all right? But, but when it comes to understanding the Epicureans, we would refer to them as like deists, all right? Deists were people who believed that there were gods, but that the gods were uninterested, that the gods were disconnected, that the gods didn't have much to do when it came to everyday, regular life. And so for most of the Epicureans, they lived as if there was actually no God at all. And because of their belief, they also believed that when you died, that was the end of you. That in your physical death was also your soul dying. And so for them, their philosophy when it came to life was to live for pleasure. To live to make you happy, particularly when it came to sexual pleasure. It was likely like the, the, you know, the uh, philosophy of the 70s in America. Get all you can sexually with whoever you can sexually because ultimately your sexual pleasure will lead to happiness. That's the Epicureans. We're also told that there were the Stoics. They're the Stoics. And the Stoics were different than the Epicureans. They would be what we would call uh, pantheists that they believed that God was everywhere and in everything. That they believed that the gods of the universe were invested in humanity and had impact on humanity. And so because of that, they believed that there was divine purpose in life. They also happened to believe that there were moral absolutes, that is, that there was definitive right and wrong, that the way that we live our life, the actions that we take, the behaviors in the way that we live, that there is a right way to do it and there is a wrong way to do it. They were virtuous people. And the virtue that they held up highest, the number one value when it came to the Stoics was that of strength. And so the way that that lived out in their lives is that as life happened, particularly when suffering happens, that the most virtuous thing that you could do was connect yourself from your emotions, from your feelings, the things that make us human so that you could focus on logic and be strong or be Stoic. And so Paul as in the Agora, the marketplace, this contested space where Jews and Gentiles, Epicureans and Stoics are all present with their own philosophies in life. And as the story unfolds, we see the tension, don't we? Is Jesus relevant in this world? Is the gospel relevant in a world like this? Or is Jesus just another statue in a city full of thousands of them. That Paul enters into this contested space, and as he begins, we're told in verse 17 that he began to reason with them. Now, this word reason in the English, we need to make understanding or make sure that we understand what it means, that what Luke is writing here for us when it comes to the Apostle Paul is this type of reasoning is Socratic reasoning. And Socratic reasoning, if you're familiar with the term, was not preaching, it's not like fiery debate. Paul's not standing on a soapbox in the middle of the marketplace proclaiming Jesus. That's not Socratic reasoning. Socratic reasoning began with questions. It began by listening to the dreams and the aspirations, the philosophies, the weaknesses, the issues that people faced. And then after knowing and understanding people, it would take their own premises and philosophies and show them a better way. And so Paul's in the middle of the Agora, in the middle of the marketplace, asking questions, listening to the philosophies and using the gospel to show that Jesus is a better way. 
which means that when it comes to the relevance question that Paul believes that the gospel actually has what it takes to challenge the greatest philosophical thoughts of the day. That when it comes to the gospel, Paul believes that the gospel has what it takes to enter into the public square. For believers, that we can engage in thoughtful discussion because when it comes to the gospel, the gospel isn't only about bringing us like peace and love in our inner souls, but it actually has what it takes to bring flourishing to all of humankind, to the entire world. See, what Paul models for us is what cultural engagement looks like in a post-Christian world. That is, in a world where Jesus is not the center of life. And our challenge today is the same challenge that Paul faced in Acts chapter 17 in Athens. That whenever we talk about anything as Christians, when we enter into the public square, when we begin to have conversations with people, we have to realize that we are in contested space, that we are living in a post-Christian world, that for most of our world, for most of our society, that Jesus is not at the center. And what Paul models for us is what does it look like for us as believers, as followers of Jesus, to engage culturally. And when we are in the contested space, when we're there, Paul's model for us is that we just don't preach. We don't just stand up and, you know, enter into controversial or fiery debate. Look, we're not trying to Bible thump anybody. That when it comes to cultural engagement, it's not about winning an argument. It's about taking the attitude of humility and beginning to ask questions, sincere questions, and then intently listening as people reveal their dreams, their aspirations, their philosophies, their issues, their weakness in this life, and then showing them how Jesus is the better way. The rest of the story is about how Paul does that. Picking up in verse 18, and some said, (laughs) what does this babbler wish to say? And others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you. For you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know therefore what these things mean. And so Paul is engaged in this cultural conversation in the marketplace, and some of them immediately begin to to accuse him of just being a babbler, of just talking nonsense. And others of them are looking at him and saying, man, you're talking about like, it seems like a foreign divinity here. Like, we don't understand what you're saying. And so all of this conversation is happening around Paul, and the solution is, is to go up to Mars Hill. And on top of Mars Hill is this philosophical council. And this philosophical council holds court to decide one of two things. That you would stand before the council and you would explain what it is and they would decide either that what you're talking about is thoughtful and coherent and you have permission to to teach this, to have conversations about this in Athens or you're crazy, you're a lunatic, that none of this makes sense and you need to shut up. That's what they were deciding. Verse 22. And so Paul standing in the midst And the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So Paul's standing before the philosophical council. And at this point, he could have operated the way that he normally did, which was when he entered into the city, he would go to a synagogue. 
And as he sat in the synagogue, he would begin to teach out of the Old Testament. He would remind the people there of the promises that were made in the Old Testament and ultimately how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of them. That's the way that Paul normally operated, but here he goes differently. He doesn't begin with the Old Testament because, well, the people of Athens, they didn't know the Old Testament. He actually begins to contextualize the message for them. He starts with their premise. He starts with their philosophies to help them understand. Verse 23 for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. That at this point, Paul's done his due diligence, hasn't he? He's wandered the city. He's got to know the people. There's a sense of who they are. He's humbly submitted himself by asking questions and listening intently to their answers, to understand who they are, how they tick, their passions in the world that he understands who these people are. And so he's standing before the council and he says, it's fairly obvious that you're religious people. I mean, just take a walk through your city. You can see the 3,000 idols everywhere. You can see the temples littered throughout the landscape of this place. It is, it is obvious that you're very religious. It's obvious to me that you're, that you're seeking truth, that you're seeking after God. And I just happened to notice I was strolling through your city that you have one idol that's dedicated to an unknown God. Now, from archaeology, we know that this would have been true. That when it came to the Greeks and their understanding of spirituality and religion, <laughs> that they operated most of their lives in such a way that their lives were on this earth to please the gods. Now, we've all read like the Greek mythologies and, and kind of seen how fickle the gods of Greek mythology was. And so for most Greek people, they lived in this fear that if they did not make the gods happy, that the gods would be, have displeasure with them and they would spite them and they'd smoke them off the earth. And so most of Greeks' life all revolved around making the gods happy. And then someone had this thought, like, what if we spend all this time making all these gods that we know about happy and we miss one? And that God is displeasured and he smokes us off the earth. Like nobody wants to be smoked off the earth by God, right? So like, we got a solution. We'll just make an idol to the unknown God. We'll worship him. And that way, just in case we miss something, we can make all the gods happy, even the ones that we don't know. Paul going to this God is brilliant because he starts with their very own premise. He starts with their very own philosophy. And strategically, no matter what he says about this God, they can't say it's not true. They've already publicly admitted they don't know who this God is. And so what are they going to say? They can't say anything. And so Paul begins with this sense, with this license to be able to explain this unknown God. And he starts with the idea that this unknown God is the creator. Verse 24. The God who made the worlds and everything in it, being Lord of the heavens and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, everything. That even in the ancient worlds, even in the ancient world, they understood that the universe didn't come out of nothing, that the universe couldn't self-create, that there had to be some kind of force, there had to be some kind of power, there had to be some kind of deity that launched it all, that created it all. And so he identifies this unknown God as the creator of the universe. 
And he says, if it's true that this unknown God is the creator of the universe, then it makes sense that this God is also the Lord of the heavenlies and also the Lord of the earth. And if this God is Lord of the heavenlies and the Lord of the earth, you got to know that all these temples that you have, he's not impressed by them. That all the statues that you got going on out here, he's not impressed by them. That since he is the author and the sustainer of life, since he has created all things, he really doesn't need anything. So what you bring to him, it's not impressing him. It's not. And what Paul does in like four lines, I mean, this is so amazing, in four lines, methodically, he undercuts the whole Greek pagan religious system. In four lines, he cuts the legs right out from under it. In other words, Paul says, God is not impressed by your temple, and he's not impressed with what you're doing. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. This was important because the Greeks believed that it all started with them, that they were superior, that they were the best, that everything revolved around them. And Paul says, not so. <laughs> Actually, God, he's already determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. And the next thing that Paul says is perhaps the most significant philosophical statements that we have all of all in the New Testament. He quotes one of their own philosophers in verse 28 when he says this, for in him we live and in him we move and in him we have our being that Paul takes their own premise, their own philosophy, he takes one of their own philosophers and says, contrary to what the Epicureans may be saying, that life, when it comes to our relationship with God, that he cannot be known, that he's disconnected from all of this, that I'm here to tell you that he's actually the author and the sustainer of life that he's involved with us, that he wants to be known by us, that he wants to walk in this world with us. And despite what the Stoics may believe, that God is in everything, where's the power come from? The power's not in the water, it's not in the trees, it's not in your statues of gold and silver and, you know, stone, that the power is in God. That it's God alone, this God who brought something out of, out of nothing. That he brings life out of death. For he is the God of resurrection. That ultimate reality is found in God and God alone. He goes on, verse 30, that the times of your ignorance, that is the times of your unknowing, God says it's over. God's overlooked all that, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Here comes the message of the gospel. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. Like, you can imagine this moment that Paul is standing on top of Mars Hill in one of the most famous places in all of the worlds. They're looking over the cliff into the city of Athens. And Paul says, I want you guys to look at all of this. Look at all the things that you've created, the temples and the statues, all of it. 
All of this was built, all of this was created out of ignorance. All of these idols, all of these statues thinking that you're seeking after truth, that you're seeking after God. I'm here to tell you today that if you're willing to repent, that word means change your minds and realize that there is one true God and that that God is ultimately the judge and that judge is going to come not by idols of gold or silver or stone, but through a man. And that man is identified as Jesus, who is the one that was crucified for the forgiveness of your sins, who rose three days later proving he is who he says he is. And here, as Paul delivers that message, contextualized for the people of Athens, here's the response, verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked him. They laughed, they made fun. Who, what intelligent person could believe this? But there are others there who said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from the council's midst. As we pull ourselves out of Acts chapter 17, our place in history is important to see the influence of this story. At the end of the story, we have some officials that are sitting on the council who mock and make fun of, of what Paul brings to them. Basically stepping back and saying, what intelligent person would believe this? What relevance does this have to our world? Others go, this is intriguing. <laughs> I'd like to hear more. And in our place of history, we have the benefits of looking back and seeing that within a couple of hundred years that the Emperor Constantine will make the gospel, the faith system of the Roman Empire, not just because he believed it, but because so many people believed it in the Roman Empire. That some 200 years later, it's not what intelligent person would believe this. You fast forward a couple hundred years and most all intelligent people believe this. That I can't help but think that in this place of Athens where God has Paul in the center of the city that influences all of the philosophical, all of the intelligent thought throughout the Roman Empire, that this is the match that gets lit, that ultimately spreads the gospel throughout the entire empire. That Paul never lived long enough to see the great impact that this moment in history had. See, every culture, every culture is made up of people. And every person, every single one of us, every single person alive has aspirations and dreams and philosophies about how this world is to run. We all have our weaknesses and our issues. The dominant cultural ideas try to answer the issues that we face tries to answer the dreams that we have, but none of them, none of them ultimately answer our aspirations and our issues like Christianity. That as we look out at the world today, the dominant cultural ideas, every single one of them try to answer the issues that we face, the aspirations that we have, and yet none of them answer the aspirations and issues better than Christianity. See, the Stoics believed in moral absolutes, but it made them cold. And Christianity comes along and says, no, 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 no. You can actually have moral absolutes and not give up the passions and the emotions and the things that make you human. 
And the Epicureans came along and they said, yeah, yeah, but life is, but life is all about the pursuit of, of happiness. Indulge yourself sexually. But ultimately, we can look back through history and we can see that ultimately that led to loneliness. And Christianity comes along and says, look, you can pursue happiness in your life and you can do it in such a way that it won't lead to loneliness. That it all begins to walk in a relationship with a person. And in society today, we're, much, we're not much different, are we? I mean, honestly speaking, we're not much different. We have our dreams and our aspirations. We have our philosophical views. We have our issues and our challenges. I mean, in society, we have morality, don't we? But today in our society, morality is by plurality. Morality is by the numbers. That when we decide that we want to know if something's right or wrong, we take a big vote. And there's something intrinsically inside of us that goes, who are we to choose this? Like, what is a bunch of sinful humanity gathering together to vote on something? How do we know that that's right? Like, there has to be a standard. There has to be a way better. There has to be a playbook of how this works to be able to understand right and wrong. And, and we live in a society designed around pleasure, don't we? That, we? that we live in a society that since at least the 70s with the sexual revolution, that our society is designed to find pleasure and happiness within, within sex. Sexual freedom. Explore your sexuality. Sleep with as many people as you can. And in that you will find, you will find happiness. And yet all the research in the world... In fact, a study just done this year shows now that 50%, 50% of those under the age of 40 that are the children, these are the children, this is mine, the children of the sexual revolution of the 70s, that a full 50% experience bouts with loneliness. Experience bouts with loneliness. See, our society, we have the Stoics and we have the Epicureans, <laughs> We just don't use those terms. But you want to look out on America today to understand the major philosophies of our time? They're there. And yet we know that they do not fill the deepest desires of our soul. See, in Acts chapter 17, Paul stands at the epicenter of a society that's wondering if Jesus is relevant. If the faith that the Christians are proclaiming, if it's relevant in their world, and Paul comes in and says, I think you know that there is a good and great God above and beyond all of these things. And I'd love the opportunity to introduce you to him. And for some of you, you've wandered in today, sensing that there's a God who exists that you just don't know. You actually do sense a God. You can see it. You can see this God in your writings, in your thoughts, and in your behaviors. For example, why do you believe that love is right, that love is right, and cruelty is wrong? Like, what basis do you have for that in your life? What, what are you building that value upon? Who can say that love is right and cruelty is wrong? If you in your life are fighting for love as something that is good and right, you have, an, you have an altar to an unknown God. You know he's there because your belief makes no sense unless he's there. And I think you're here today and you know that there is a good and great God above and beyond all of these things. And I would love the opportunity to introduce you to him.
So he's a God who can be known. And when you know this God, you will understand the treasure that he is in your life as you live with him. The life knowing this God is made possible because of what Jesus ultimately accomplished on the cross. When he removed the barrier of sin and death that separates us from God. See, the cross, when we start to understand this God, we begin to understand that the cross is not just a vehicle that saves us from death, but it's a vehicle that actually propels us into the arms of life. That's what the cross is. That's what the gospel is. That you are invited into experiencing a life with God now. And if you'd like to have a conversation about what that looks like, in your life, I would encourage you to take your phone out and to text the name of Jesus. We'd love to ask questions. We'd love to hear your story, to understand what makes you tick, your dreams and your aspirations, your issues and your weakness. And we would love the opportunity to show you Jesus as the better way. You can text the name of Jesus to the number that James mentioned earlier, 720-513-1933. Will you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we walk through this amazing story in Acts chapter 17, one that is so familiar to those of us who have walked through, who've walked through the Bible, who have lived our lives in church. And yet, Lord, because of its familiarity, it can be so easy for the point of it to be lost on us. Father, I'm grateful today that you've reminded us that, that the faith that we proclaim, the Savior that we have in your Son, Jesus, that he is relevant to this world. That as the world faces the issues and the weaknesses, as our world dreams and has aspirations, as there are thousands of philosophies that people are chasing after, none of them answers the questions of our life the way that you do. And so, Father, I pray, I pray, Lord, that as we enter into the public square, that we would realize that we are entering into contested space and that our role in that space is not to preach or to get into fiery debates or to Bible thump people. But Lord, may we demonstrate in humility what it looks like to listen and to love and to come alongside the people that you have created to show them who you are and that you can be known that they can be known by you, loved and accepted. Father, I pray for the people who wandered in here today looking for a God that they did not know. I pray that you would whisper to their spirit and in doing so that you would open their eyes to a life that you have with them. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. We come together today as a family, as a church, around the table of communion, reminding ourselves of the gospel. That through the cross of Jesus, that his body was broken, his blood was spilt for the forgiveness of our sins. That through his death, the barrier of sin and death that separated us from God was torn down. And as we believe and faithfully proclaim and remember, we can have confidence that there's a God who knows us, who accepts us, who loves us,
and that in that treasure we get to walk with him. Let's eat together. And let us drink knowing that this is the cup of our salvation. Over the next few minutes, if you need prayer, we'd love to pray for you online. You can click the button in house. You can make your way over to the prayer banner. But I'm gonna invite everyone in the house to go ahead and to stand as we sing today. We're gonna sing a song called Beautiful Name. Everything that we just talked about in Acts chapter 17, the reality of God as creator, God wanting to be known, and that path of being known, being paved by the work of Jesus at the cross and ultimately through his resurrection. That beautiful name is all of those beautiful truths put to music that will sing to our souls. So let's sing together and lift our praise to Jesus.